Well, that's a lot of different commentary. How do you make heads or tails of that? Um, obviously, we need some wisdom. We need some clarity. Uh, we need some definitive answers about such a weighty, eternal kind of matter. So we're turning to Jesus today to see what wisdom he can share with us about heaven and hell, eternal destinies. And uh, we'll be doing that by looking at Matthew's Gospel, the seventh chapter. So let me encourage you to get a Bible and open it up to Matthew, first book in the New Testament, and get to the seventh chapter. We'll be looking at that in just a minute. Um, I have kind of the unenviable task today. If you need a Bible, hold up your hand. Some of these guys have them over here. Uh, of talking about heaven and hell because, um, let's face it, uh, there's not only some confusion and there's a lot of different opinions about it out there. Uh, for many, it's just not even a fact or an issue, right? Uh, because it's not considered to be something that's a part of reality. It's more of a fairy tale to some people. In fact, the uh, Barna organization did a survey uh, not too long ago uh, across America. Thousands of people surveyed. What do you believe about heaven and about hell? And uh, what we found out is that 81% of Americans believe that there is some kind of life after death. Don't know exactly what that is, uh, but uh, I think there's life after death. 81% said that. 10% said no. There is no life after death. 9% said, oh, I'm not sure. I need some help there. 76% of those surveyed said they believe there is a heaven. So in terms of the life that comes after death, there is the possibility of a, a heavenly kind of experience. 71% believe in hell. It's interesting how more would believe in heaven and fewer would believe in hell. But still, the majority of Americans would say there's life after death and there's heaven and hell. 1% believe they will actually go to hell. Now, that is a fascinating statistic to me. I don't even know what to make of that. And then 64% said they believe they will go to heaven. And again, 76% believe in heaven. Only 64% believe they'll go there. One, only 1% 1 said, I know I'm not. So there's a lot of people that just aren't sure, right? It's not clear. Um, and, and the rest of the story is they don't even know exactly where to go and what steps to take to try to answer some of the questions. don't even know what all the questions are. And so uh, I, I feel like today is a very, very important time for us because we're going to not only address such a weighty issue, but we're going to do so from the scriptures, from the teachings of Jesus and hopefully it'll be part of the evidence that you are weighing about what is true and uh, how your life needs to be conducted in, in the light of that. So, what are we to say about heaven and hell? The Bible says that heaven and hell are places. They are destinations. They are states of being that are eternal. That is to say, they go on and on forever and ever, never ceasing. 
And we enter into the state of either heaven or hell when life as we know it here is over, either by our own death or by the return of Christ that ushers in, you know, this next age. There is uh, admittedly a limitation in being able to talk about or to describe heaven and hell because these are infinite kinds of realities outside of our experience. Words fail us to really get at it. And when words fail us to get at anything, then we resort to symbols to try to describe these things, right? So uh, the Bible gives us words in symbolic fashion to describe heaven. The Bible says that heaven's going to be a place that uh, has streets of gold and walls of jasper and gates of pearl. The Bible says that hell will be a place that is a burning lake of fire where torment and anguish are so great people will be perpetually weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth. Now, the thing that you have to remember about a symbol is because people sometimes hang on to them too tightly or dismiss them altogether as fairy tale. Symbols reflect on another matter, but dimly so. In other words, a symbol can never really actually capture the thing that it's trying to symbolize. It just kind of sheds some light on it. Are you with me? So when we say that heaven is a place that has streets of gold, walls of jasper, gates of pearl, what we're saying is it is so marvelous. It is so wondrous. It is so captivating and, and awesome and glorious. We just don't have words for it. See, I, I just threw about seven adjectives together and you're like, well, you know, OK, so because you just can't get at it's so much greater than the symbols. It's so much greater than the words. And conversely, hell is so much worse than the symbols and the words. You cannot even begin to get at it in terms of its reality. In its most basic bottom line essence, heaven is where God is. Hell is is where God is not. So those that go to heaven get to be where God is forever. You get to be, live with uh, God forever. And those that go to hell are without God forever. Now when I say that, minus the symbols, some of us are going, well, you know, outside of the contrast between heaven and hell, I don't know why anybody would be that excited about heaven. You just get to like be where God is. And friends, that's because we have such a minute, diminished view of who God is. Uh, you know, for many of us, we have slapped the face of some authoritarian figure in our life on God. And we, we say, okay, that's kind of like what God is like. 
And we think about God as this big killjoy in the sky. He's got all these rules, all these regulations. God holds all the goodies. And he plays this game with us that if we will go along with some of the silly rituals and some of the uh, practices and so on like that, he may dispense a few goodies to us along the way. But frankly, I have a pretty good time when I don't have God in the picture. Right? I mean, that's a pretty pervasive sentiment that I, you know, I kind of like naughtiness. I kind of like the forbidden stuff. I mean, I don't want to get like gross, wicked, but I kind of like to dabble. And friends, when that kind of sentiment permeates and dominates our thinking and our feelings, our perceptions about God and about heaven, it's not that appealing to us. It's not that desirous. It's not something that we long for and yearn for and even crave. So I want to suggest to you today, and I'm, I'm praying that you can hear me with all that is within you. Heaven is far greater than you can imagine. God is more awesome and desirable than you can even begin to perceive. And being without Him and knowing hell for eternity is far worse than anything, anything, anything you could ever conjure up in your imagination. See, here's our dilemma. Let let me take you there this way. For just a moment, kick in the imagination and and think of what's your favorite food? What is it you you just love to eat? Fill in the blank. I I'd already heard chocolate just kind of humming around the room for a few people. But maybe it's something else uh, for those of you that are carnivores and there's just a certain kind of steak or chop or whatever. Uh, if you ask my mother, it would be some combination of vegetables and cornbread. You know, I don't get that. But anyway, she would just she'd salivate about this. So what's the food? You got that in your mind? Now, imagine that something awful happened to you. And you lost your taste buds. Okay? So that you cannot taste anymore. Your mouth is dead. Just imagine that happens. And it does happen to some people, uh, you know, from time to time. So, and let's just say it was chocolate, okay? So imagine that you got your favorite kind of chocolate and you began to consume it. And you've got a dead mouth. It cannot taste the chocolate whatsoever. There's no savor. There's no enjoyment there. You know it's in your mouth, but you just can't taste it. You have the faintest of memory of what delight that taste is, but you ain't got the taste anymore, right? That is exactly what we're talking about with us and God. The Bible says that we are dead to God. We've got no taste No capacity to taste God. And so when I start talking to you about how delightful, what you know, what a delicious thing it is to know, to experience, to taste the Lord. So you just have the faintest sense of what that is, because we all have dead spiritual taste buds. So having said that. That's why we understand God to be so good and so gracious 
that he would actually clothe himself in flesh and come and be with us so that we could have a foretaste, so that we could have a small sampling of what it's like to know, to be with, to experience, to taste God. And the Bible is very clear. For God to have clothed Himself in the flesh of Jesus Christ to be with us was to give up massive amount of glory to take on flesh. The Bible makes it clear we cannot handle the glory of God. The glory of God is so magnificent. The the glory of God is so dynamic and so explosive that if if we got even more than a thimble's worth of exposure to the glory of God, it'd wipe us out. You say, how do you know that? Well, go look at Isaiah chapter 6. Here's a man of God that knows God, that walks well with God. Uh, You know, arguably, there's been few people to walk this planet that that knows God like Isaiah knew God. And in chapter 6, when he goes to the temple one day to worship, and he has an extraordinary, extra special time of encountering God, a little more of the glory of God was exposed to him in that moment than what is normal for him. And in that moment of just just getting a little more of a glimpse of the holiness of God, it knocked him off his feet. And he had to just cry out, I'm so undone. I'm so unworthy. I cannot stand to be in the presence of God. And so God, in his goodness, clothed himself with flesh, came to us in the person of Jesus, gave us a foretaste began to activate our taste buds just a little bit so that we could have a little sensation of what the glory of God is about. So that we could know that being with Him and having Him in our life and and, and doing eternity with Him would be life's greatest treasure. Now, Jesus begins to get at unpacking this for us in Matthew's Gospel, and particularly in chapter 7, with three sets of two. And we've already, we've already looked at a couple of these. The first thing that Jesus does, and we looked at this last week, was he gives us a look at two paths. And he says, now, here's the way to the kingdom of heaven. Here's the way to true life. Uh, you go through a, a narrow gate, a narrow path that is hard and difficult. Now, there's another gate. It's wide and it's much easier. It's less demanding on your life. A lot of people are going to go that way. But if you're going to have eternal life, if you're going to know the kingdom of heaven, you will choose the narrow way. Then he gave another set of twos when he talked about trees. And he said, those that really know me, those that really have life in me, those that are having their lives set for the kingdom of heaven, bear fruit. Like a good tree that bears good fruit, so they are. Now, there are others who, you know, are kind of in close proximity to faith and to God and the things of God. And they try to kind of have a fruitful life. But the fact of the matter is, they're a bad tree. It's got bad or barren, uh, bad, bad fruit or no fruit. And uh, that's how you know 
if you are on the straight and narrow or if you're on the wide and the easy because there's this fruit thing that does or does not happen in you. Fruit meaning uh, like the character of Christ himself. You are able to love and you have joy and a deep sense of that. And it's pervasive. And you have peace. And uh, no matter what the circumstances are, peace reigns over you and guards your heart. You know that it's well. Uh, there's kindness and there's goodness. There's self-control. All these things are happening in your life. You're bearing that kind of fruit if you're, in fact, alive in Christ. The third set of twos that he gives us is uh, the foundations, and that's what we're looking at today. He said everybody's building a life. You're building a life. And crucial to how you're building your life is the foundation. And a lot of people will build their life... On a place that has a view, looks awesome, seems like it's wonderful, everybody else desires it, but it's on sand. And when the storms come, it won't be able to stand. And it'll be demolished. But those that really have life in me, who are building their life on me, on the rock, no matter how the storms come, their lives are able to stand. Now, note, whether you're building your life on Christ or you're building your life on something else, storms come. Building your life on Christ does not mean no storms come. He's very clear about that. He says storms will come. But the difference is your life will be able to stand in those storms where the house that's built on the sand will not. So let's look at the text and let's get more specific into what Jesus is describing there. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 7 and we're picking up in verse 21. And if you don't have these verses marked in your Bible, I would encourage you to put them in brackets, highlight them in some kind of way, because these are some of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Verse 21, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Are there any more sobering words in all the Bible than that? But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that's who is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, what day? Day of accountability, the day of judgment, the day that's the end of time as we know it in this, in this life and in this world. On that day, many will say to me, Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works, which means miracles, in your name? Verse 23. Then will I, Jesus, declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, not as just religious leaders. Now leave your Bible open as we continue to unpack what's being said in there. I don't know any more sobering words in the Bible than depart from me. So, who enters the kingdom of heaven? Don't ask somebody on the street. Okay? Might make interesting chit-chat in the coffee shop. But we're going to the Word of God to find out what God says. And here's how Jesus articulated it. He says, the one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the Father's will. Now, if you're sitting there going, okay, I knew it had something to do with works and doing more good works than bad works. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. What is the Father's will? See, when you look at it in its context, and you're looking at the verses, right? When Jesus says, depart from me. For I never knew you. He gives you the clue right there. The will of the Father is that you give yourself to Jesus in relationship. What disqualified those from entering the kingdom of heaven in Jesus' account here? What disqualified them? They had all kinds of works. They had glorious, powerful, godly works. They were prophesying. They were preaching. They were teaching. They were announcing things about Jesus. They were doing miracles. They were involved in all kinds of ministry and, shall we say, gospel-type or church-type service. Friends, there's going to be a lot of pastors, priests, Church leaders, church members that do not go to heaven. Because it's not about doing those kinds of works. It's about having a relationship with Jesus. The only thing that disqualified them that he says, depart from me, is I never knew you. We never had relationship. Heaven is a place For those who are in God's family, who have been born to his family by having a relationship with Jesus. That's how it happens. Who enters the kingdom of heaven? It's the one who does the Father's will. What's the Father's will? That you have relationship with his son, Jesus. That's it. Now, what does that relationship mean? Look like. Because, I mean, I, you know, you may be sitting there going, you know, I pray, I read my Bible, 
I go to worship gatherings like this. I, I, I attend a small group. Uh, sometimes God feels kind of close to me. Sometimes He doesn't feel very close to me. I mean, how do you know if you have a relationship with Him? Well, you know in the same way that you know that you have a relationship with anybody. Anybody that you legitimately have a relationship with, that changes your life. It impacts your life. There's some kind of impact. Now, if I don't really know you, if you're an acquaintance going down the road, you know, it just doesn't matter. But if I legitimately have a relationship, you know, I could have said I do at an altar 34 years ago with my wife. And we could have occupied the same space in the same house for all these years. And if that never changed me, if that never impacted me, if that was never of that kind of import to me, then, friend, we weren't married. We just shared the same geography. We didn't really have a relationship. So Jesus says, here's who enters the kingdom of heaven. He does the words of Jesus. He said in verse 24, whoever hears and does my words... Is like the one who builds his house on the rock. Is like the one who has a relationship with me and is going to heaven someday. Now, what were his words? Well, there's a lot of them across the New Testament and in the Gospels. That's why we think Bible study is important. But just in chapter 6 and 7, he told us these things. He said in chapter 6, if you're in relationship with me and you're doing what I'm telling you to do, then you're laying up treasure in heaven. See, you've, you've begun to understand what's really important, what the real value of things are. And, and you're not fooling around laying up treasure in this world. You're laying up treasure in heaven. He also said in chapter 6, when you're in relationship with me, see, you begin to understand how much God cares about you. You begin to understand how much God loves you, how much God has invested in you. And so you don't sit around and fret. You don't worry. You don't wring your hands. I mean, you see the flower. You see the little bird. You know how much God cares for them. And then you know how much more He cares for you than they. And so you trust Him. One of the ways that you know you're in relationship with God is that you trust. And you don't worry. You go, oh man, I'm in deep weeds. I worry all the time. Okay, let me ask you this. Since you think you have begun doing relationship with Jesus, do you worry less? See, the thing is, I want to know, do I worry less today than I worried a year ago because of Jesus in my life? Do I worry less today than I did 10 years ago because of Jesus in my life? If I am, if I'm growing, if I'm becoming, if I'm realizing a greater trust, then that is reflective of my having a relationship with Him. I don't mean that... Instantaneously, you're wholeheartedly trust-filled overnight. Jesus said, if you're doing life with me, if we have relationship, then you begin to seek God and His kingdom and His righteousness before everything else. He becomes the prioritization of your life. There is not even a close second. That's how you know. And then in chapter 7, he said, here's how you know that we're in relationship. You persist in prayer. You don't give up. You don't quit. 
praying. You keep on asking. You keep on knocking. You keep on seeking because you know, you have confidence in the Father that He's going to come through in some kind of way. People that just, you know, utter a little formulaic thing out there hoping to see some magic happen and, and quit when it doesn't, they didn't have a relationship. And then He said that you will uh, experience these things in a fruit-bearing kind of way. It'll change your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, those kinds of things. And so, friends, what do you do with what you've been hearing? Do you repent and follow Jesus? Now, every day I'm tempted to follow my own way. I haven't stopped, and I've been following Jesus for over 30 years. But every day I'm tempted to follow my own way. So, you know what? Every day I have to repent. Every day I have to make choices not to go in my own way and to turn and to go into His way. So let me ask you, do you repent? Do you live a repentant kind of lifestyle every day having to make choices to turn from what your self-will would compel you to do and go in His direction? Jesus said, if you do, then you'll do the hard things that are on the narrow path. We looked at that last week. He said, if you do, then you will bear the fruit of that repentance. It'll change your life. You'll begin to have a character like Jesus's. You'll become excellent in loving. Excellent in experiencing joy. Excellent in being able to have a sense of peace, no matter the circumstances in your life, etc., etc. And if you're consistently repenting and following Him, you've got a foundation. You're building a life on the rock. Storms come. And you continue to stand with trust and confidence and hope no matter how the storm plays out just like the testimony we heard earlier today. That's how you know that faith is operative in you. Do you have any idea what's weighing in the balance right now? See, God knew you'd be here it was God's idea that you would come today. For whatever reason you think you got up and came, there was a spirit stirring in you that brought you to this appointment so that you could think about and contemplate and even pray about these issues of eternal destiny. Friends, the, the only reason this church exists, the only reason, is to provide you the best opportunity to say yes to Jesus. 
And if we get you to say yes to anything else, yes to morality, yes to good behavior, yes to a better life, and if we get you to say yes to anything else, but you didn't say yes to Jesus, then we didn't, we didn't get the thing done with you. And so, um, as a friend, I'm praying and I'm pleading today. Turn to Jesus. Give your heart. Give your trust. Give your life to Jesus. Let's pray. The Father, Your Spirit is at work in someone's heart right now. And You're inviting them to say an eternal yes to You. So we just pray for our friend right now. That, Lord, as they are getting a little foretaste of you, a little foretaste of heaven, as you're activating some of those dead spiritual taste buds, I pray. That there would be an eternal yes. A destiny changed. Today. In Jesus name. Amen. Mm-hmm.